there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. Topic of this afternoon's talk is the stronghold of my life. The stronghold of my life comes from Psalm. 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? How to keep a quiet heart? Put your whole trust in a God who is rational, personal, loving, and completely in charge of the whole universe and every tiniest detail of our lives. How to keep a quiet heart. Put your whole trust in a God who is rational, personal, loving, and in charge of the whole universe and every tiniest detail of our lives. What we look at as special providences are just a part of the whole grand providence arranged and engineered and sustained by the one who created all things. Everything from the tiniest microbe to the giraffe, the elephant, the whale, and us human folks. I really do believe that God is in control of every tiniest detail of our lives. Many people really choke on this concept and I have had some very angry people come up to me and say, Elizabeth Elliot, are you going to try to tell me that God had something to do with my husband being an alcoholic or with my wife walking out on me and leaving me with the children or any sort of disastrous, dastardly deed that someone has done which you feel as though it has ruined your life, perhaps a man who has been uh, complete, his business has been ruined because of some dishonest co-worker. There are terrible things that happen, aren't there? And of course, for those who have not thoroughly ransacked the scriptures or have not had the opportunity to walk with the Lord for as many years as I have, it does seem impossible to imagine that God could have anything to do with those things. God's in charge of the good things, and God, God may be in charge of some of the bad things, but there are things that happen that surely God doesn't have anything to do with. So I want to read to you two quotations, one from St. Francis de Sales, whose dates were 1567 to 1622. Is it relevant for today? It is wonderfully relevant. And I read this over and over again myself. Strive to see God in all things without exception, and acquiesce in his will with absolute submission. Do everything for God, uniting yourself to him by a mere upward glance or by the overflowing of your heart towards him. Never be in a hurry. Do I hear any response to that? <laughs> Do everything quietly and in a calm spirit. And I'm the kind of person that 
would just as soon do something in a slapdash way in order to get it over with, but that won't do, and my granddaughter Elizabeth is exactly like me, and I'm exhorting her with things that my mother had to exhort me about. Do everything quietly and in a calm spirit. Do not lose your inward peace for anything whatsoever, even if your whole world seems upset. Commend all to God, and then lie still and be at rest in his bosom. Whatever happens, abide steadfast in a determination to cling simply to God, trusting to his eternal love for you. And if you find that you have wandered forth from this shelter, recall your heart quietly and simply. Maintain a holy simplicity of mind and do not smother yourself with a host of cares under any pretext. Maintain a holy simplicity of mind and do not smother yourself with a host of cares, wishes, or longings under any pretext. And you know, the will of God is really simple. That doesn't mean easy, but it's simple. And when a woman says to me, well, what does submission mean? How am I supposed to submit to my husband? I sometimes say, you know, not one man in the world has ever asked me what submission means. They know, and we know. And if you come out of a shopping trip and you have a ticket on your car, you know what you're supposed to do, don't you? You know that you have to submit to the law. We all know exactly what submission means. The problem with us wives submitting to our husbands is that we don't want to. And I remember echoing always in my mind the headmistress of the school that I attended when I was in boarding school in high school back years, many, many, many decades ago, a thousand years ago in Florida. The headmistress used to say to me, and my name was Betty Howard in those days, she'd say, Betty Howard, you are so negative. She said, you can do anything in this world that you want to, but the trouble with you is you don't want to. Well, do you want to do the will of God? It is simple. Not easy, but simple. God is not going to make it complicated for you to find out what that is. And most of the time, it's very down-to-earth things. Now, I said I was going to read two quotations. I think I will leave it at that. There's another one from another man, and I might have time before we finish here, but I will think that's enough for you to chew on for a while. I have seen this rational, personal, loving God completely in charge of my life over all these decades. And I'm going to tell you some of the ways. One of the great influences in my life was that lovely missionary to China, Betty Scott Stamm. She happened to be a guest in our home before she was Betty Scott Stamm. She was Betty Scott, and she was on her way to China to marry John Stamm, a missionary over there. I was just a little child when she was one of the many missionaries that visited in our home. I was eight years old when my father brought home the newspaper which told of the martyrdom of John and Betty Stamm. They were captured by Chinese communists in 1934, and they were marched half-naked and chained through the streets of the village, and then 
Betty had to watch as her husband John was beheaded. And then she was told to put her neck on the chopping block. And she too was killed. When I was 12, I came upon a prayer that she had written as a young girl. And I made that my prayer and put it in the back of my Bible at the age of 12. And I want to remind you mothers, don't don't misjudge or underestimate the spiritual acumen of your children. I do believe that God speaks very really and very understandably to children, small children. And when we reach the age of 12 or 13, we are definitely responsible to be about our father's business, as Jesus told his mother. That age of 12, I think, is a real watershed. So it's interesting to me that when I was 12, I picked that out. And instead of being afraid to pursue my desire to be a missionary, I was challenged by it and longed to be that kind of a missionary. But these are the words of the prayer that Betty Scott Stam wrote. Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will from my life. I give myself, my life, my all utterly to thee, to be thine forever. Fill me and seal me with thy Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt. Send me where thou wilt. And work out thy whole will in my life at any cost, now and forever. When she wrote those words, could she imagine what the cost was going to be for her and John? She did not know, did she? And none of us knows. But God has got the whole thing completely laid out for his glory and for our joy and peace. And that prayer pointed up to me very clearly the meaning of trust and obedience. I'm not going to give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, unless I trust God, obviously. We're not going to commit into somebody else's hands something with which we cannot trust them. And obedience is going to cost. That's what I learned from that prayer. Obedience to Jesus Christ is going to cost you at any cost, now and forever. And acceptance of the will of God. John and Betty Stamm accepted the will of God, and they were not delivered physically, as we would have thought maybe God would do. We don't read the Bible very thoroughly, do we? We don't pay much attention to what happened several thousand years ago, but when something like this happens in our century, then we begin to ask all those questions. What about John the Baptist? Faithful servant of God, got his head chopped off, didn't he? Because of obedience to God. What about Stephen, a man full of the Holy Spirit, who preached powerfully, and while he was preaching, was stoned to death, doing the will of God. So when I talk to these young prospective missionaries, I just tell them, don't forget that there will be a cost exacted of every last one of us. Nothing heroic probably for most of us. It's going to be something perhaps hidden, perhaps only God knows about it. But he knows, 
He's got the whole world in his hands, and he has worked out the plan for your life. Also, when I was probably 12 or 14, I've forgotten exactly when, I heard a missionary by the name of Dr. Virginia Blakesley, missionary to Africa, who told us she was a medical doctor. And I went to a Bible conference in New Jersey where she spoke every day for a week. And she told us some hair-raising stories about living with this particular savage tribe and how close she came to death several times. And I was riveted. A skinny kid on the front row, probably, as I said, 12 or 14, and I've often thought as I look over an audience, which handful of people, perhaps, in this audience are actually going to hear what I say and do something about it? I don't suppose if it crossed Dr. Blakesley's mind to ask that question herself, I don't suppose that she would have picked out this 12-year-old on the front row. But I was drinking it in with all my heart. And I have never forgotten the intensity with which Dr. Blakesley leaned forth, forward over that pulpit and quoted for us the words from Isaiah 50, verse 7, in the King James Version. Now, it's very different in the modern versions, but in the King James Version, these were the words. And I can still see her with the tears pouring down her cheeks after telling us some of these stories. And she said, the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded, and therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. It was unforgettable. Maybe she only said that verse one time during that week, but it was so deeply imprinted in my heart that I think she probably said it every day. Your greatest personal trial, perhaps something that no one will ever know about but you and God. It's much more precious than gold, Paul tells us. And, excuse me, Peter is writing to exiles. And in 1 Peter 1, 3 to 9, he says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Remember now he's talking to exiles who had probably been stripped of virtually everything they had. But we have a living hope, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. One of my very closest friends had her house burned to the ground a couple of years ago. She was one of my contemporary. We were in college together. She was a missionary in Africa. What's it like to lose literally everything you have except her car and her little dog? All the papers, all the books, all my letters, dozens, maybe hundreds of letters that I'd written to her when she was in Africa, and a lot of much more valuable things which are irreplaceable. But let's remember about this inheritance. Kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And if I were to ask for a show of hands of how many of you are suffering some kind of grief, on this particular 
Saturday, I feel quite sure there would be many. All kinds of trials. Why do we have to do this? And we're always saying, well, you know, we just don't understand these things. Why don't we? We don't understand them fully, but God has given us many, many reasons. And here is one of the most crucial. Verse 7, 1 Peter 1, These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. So that your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible, glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And then also in 1 Peter uh, 4, he says, do not be surprised, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. That overwhelms me. My sufferings? But I'm not Peter, I'm not in prison, I'm not the Apostle Paul. What have these little troubles of mine got to do with the sufferings of Christ? Christ is in me. If I suffer, Christ suffers in and with me. It gives me a share in his suffering. These are deep mysteries, aren't they? But it is the process of our salvation, received until the day of our death. I was a missionary in the western jungle of Ecuador in 1952-53. I went down to work with two English women missionaries who were from England. They were Doreen and Barbara. And they had never had linguistic training, and they were struggling, had, had been there for about five years, struggling to learn and to reduce to writing a tribal language. The tribe was called the Colorados, and you Spanish speakers know that Colorado means red, and these people were so named because they painted themselves, literally red, from head to toe. They were quite a spectacular sight. And between, then after ha painting their bodies red, then they painted black stripes horizontally from forehead to toes. And between the black stripes they put polka dots. <laughs> and they blackened their teeth and their tongue and their lips. And of course I asked them, why do you blacken your teeth, tongue, and lips? And they said to me, why do you not blacken your teeth, tongue, and lips? <laughs> you look like an animal. Animals have red tongues and red lips and white teeth. We don't want to look like animals, so we blacken them. Anyway, these people had an unwritten language. Nobody had ever succeeded in writing it down, and no other person, no other person outside of the tribe had ever learned the language. And so these two women learned that I was in Ecuador. I was learning Spanish first, of course, and they asked me if I would come down and help them because they knew that I had linguistic training. And so I, did, I went, 
And in that first year, this was before I was engaged to Jim Elliott, he was working way over on the other side of the Andes, there were three stunning blows to my faith. Three things that I could not make any sense out of, that God permitted to happen. Why? These are the trial of your faith, a thing more precious than gold. We have to go through these. We have to be tested and tested and tested, and there's never a day that goes by that there won't be another test. Maybe something very tiny, maybe something seemingly trivial, like keeping your mouth shut when you wanted to say something nasty or when you wanted to argue with your husband and you're looking at a woman who is a born arguer. I know what I'm talking about. To keep my mouth shut is one of the hardest tests that I have. But there were three things that year. First of all, there was, well, I could say there were four or five things actually, but the first thing that I had to do in order to reduce this language to writing was to find an informant, someone who was willing to sit down with me and very patiently repeat and repeat and repeat for this apparently retarded foreigner what for him was the easiest language in the world. And you know that your own mother tongue is so easy you can't imagine why anybody has any trouble learning, learning it. And God led me to a man who was wonderfully qualified, far better than anything I would have dreamed of asking. God sent me a man by the name of Macadio, who not only was a white man and spoke both Spanish and Colorado, and I had been told that there were no speakers of Colorado outside of the tribe. This was a white man who had grown up with Colorado children on an hacienda. So he was wonderfully qualified there, completely bilingual. He was out of a job. He was willing to work for me at my pay. And most astonishing of all, he was a Christian and just thrilled to think that he was going to be given a part in what he saw as the work of God, because my object, of course, was to reduce the language to writing so that we could translate the Bible for these people. And so Macadio and I began to work very happily and efficiently together for about an hour a day. I would bring to him whatever materials I had collected, and all you can do when you're trying to learn an unwritten language is to sit there with a piece of paper and a pencil and try to write down phonetically what you hear people say. And that can be extremely difficult, of course, and it's a very long, slow process because usually there are no interpreters, but he could interpret and tell me what I had written down if he could read it. So we worked very happily together. One day I was in my bedroom reading this passage in 1 Peter 4. Think it not strange. Don't be surprised concerning the fiery trial that is to try you as though some strange thing happened and I heard gunshots. That was not unusual because in those days the white people who lived in the clearing where I lived in the jungle hunted with guns. We heard guns daily. But these were followed by people screaming, horses galloping, all kinds of yelling, people racing around in, the, in this little clearing and I thought, what in the world is going on? So I went outside and discovered that Makadio, with whom I had been working only a couple of months, had just been murdered. 
And I looked at that corpse with the big hole in the head. And what do you think I said to God? Why? Did God forget that there wasn't anybody else that spoke those two languages? Was God not interested in having that language reduced to writing so that we could translate the Bible? Had I perhaps mistaken his will, maybe I came to the wrong tribe. Maybe I even came to the wrong country. Maybe God never called me to be a missionary. All these terrible, just riveting thoughts that came and just tearing my soul to pieces. Why, why, why would God let this one and only man be murdered in full daylight with six witnesses? And as I looked into that seeming abyss from which there was no glimmer of light and no echo of any voice, and I was saying, why? God was not giving me an answer except to say, trust me. He's not going to explain all these things. We cannot comprehend the mystery of God. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain, but not likely while we're here on earth. So that was a stunning blow. Of course, I had to continue with the work much more slowly, with much greater difficulty, because there was no other replacement. And I continued, and it was during that year that this man over in the eastern jungle, with whom I had been in love for five years, asked me to marry him. God had given Jim Elliot at last a green light, and we had not had any commitment to each other of any sort until that green light went on. And so Jim asked me to marry him, and he appended to his proposal a very stringent condition. He said, I will not marry you till you learn Quechua. So this was the third language that I was going to have to start on, which meant I had to move from the western jungle over to the eastern jungle where Quechua is spoken. And I moved to a jungle station about six hours walk away from where Jim was, and I began to study Quechua. And while uh, while there, one of my jobs, I was living with another missionary family, and they assigned me the job of being on the jungle radio network every morning in which each station called in to the Missionary Aviation Fellowship uh, with any news or requests for flights or whatever. And it was a thrill to me to have that job because I got to hear Jim Elliott's voice every once in a while. But one morning, the voice was kind of strange, sounded a little agitated, and Jim reported that the entire station on which he had been working that year had just gone down the Amazon in a flood. All the buildings. There had been three old missionary buildings that had gone to rack and ruin because of termites, and Jim had repaired them. He had built two new buildings with his own hands and with the help of Indians who sold him boards. All five of the buildings went down the river, and 500 hand-planed boards, which represented 500 man-days of labor, because to make one board out of a jungle tree takes one man one whole day. And once again, what do you think jumped to my lips? 
Why, Lord? What a waste. And what did we say this morning? We are wholly at our commanding officer's what? About three of you got the word. Disposal. We are disposable. Not just this body of mine is disposable, but my work is disposable. My possessions are disposable. I am not my own. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. You are not your own. And what's the world telling us? Be your own person. Do your own thing. If it feels good, do it. If it doesn't feel good, forget it. Do you want to be a disciple? Give up your right to yourself. Take up the cross. And the cross is going to come to you in the form of suffering. How could we imagine it would be anything else? And so God was reminding me, you do not need to re know my reasons. You do not need to see how it fits into my plan. But you do need to know that it wasn't a mistake. My attention was not deflected just when that flood took place. My attention was not called elsewhere when Macadio was shot. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. The stronghold of my life. But I have to trust him. Then the third thing. I got a letter from one of the two English women with whom I had been working in the Western jungle and with whom I had left all of my language materials. They wrote to say that all of that material had been stolen. Now, in those days, there were no Xeroxes. There were no copies of anything. And there were no tape recorders. So everything that I had done that year was gone. It was all in one suitcase, which happened to be on the top of a banana truck in which one of those two missionaries was riding. And that was the only method of transportation out of that particular section of the jungle up into the civilized city of Quito. And there are always passengers in the cab of the truck, and then on the back are bananas and the luggage. So somebody had gotten up there and, and stolen all the luggage. You can imagine his disgust when he opened that particular suitcase and found nothing but a bunch of incomprehensible paper. And a third time, my reaction was, why? Lord, didn't I do that job for you? Didn't you call me? Didn't you give me a gift in linguistics? And the Lord was simply saying, trust me. I know what I'm doing. So you may ask, did the Colorado language ever get reduced to writing? Yes, it did, by other people. Wycliffe sent a couple in there, and they started from scratch. And so now there is a Colorado New Testament. But that was entirely their work. And for other reasons, which I haven't got time to go into this afternoon, of the three languages that I worked on, and the third was the Alka language later on, none amounted to anything useful for a variety of, of different reasons. One I have told you was stolen, so obviously it wasn't useful. But those were what I might call the kindergarten lessons that God was preparing me for in 1956. It was 1950. 
three, when the, when those fifty two and fifty three were the was the year that those three things took place, and it was in nineteen fifty six that my husband Jim was killed in his attempt with four other missionaries to reach a tribe of Indians called Alcas, Stone Age people who had never had the gospel. Five missionaries who had prayed that God would be their shield and their defender. And they had sung that beautiful hymn, We Rest on Thee, Our Shield and Our Defender. We go not forth alone against the foe, strong in thy strength, safe in thy keeping tender. We rest on thee, and in thy name we go. And they went with a great deal of prayer, with meticulously careful preparation over a period of 15 weeks, saying constantly, Lord, if this is not the, what you want us to do, stop us, show us, throw a monkey wrench into our plans, do whatever is necessary. We only want to do your will. And so they went in there, and after a few days, we wives got a radio message that our husbands were missing. We didn't know what had happened. We thought perhaps they've had a wonderful contact with these people. They had had a very friendly contact on the previous Friday. This was Monday morning when I received a message that they were supposed to have called in on Sunday afternoon to the missionary aviation base, and there was no radio message. And so they said, something has happened. We don't know what. And immediately the Lord brought to my mind the words from Isaiah 43, verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, neither will the flame kindle upon you, for I am the Lord your God. And I'm here to testify this afternoon, ladies, that God kept that promise. I will be with you. There isn't one here who hasn't been through some deep water or some hot fire or some dark valley, and perhaps, very likely, all three. But he is with us. He has not let us go. He is holding us. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life, the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Did I have a quiet heart during the four agonizing days of waiting to know whether these men were dead or alive? I can't say that I did. I do know that very, in, a, in very real ways, God was sustaining us. I can remember sitting at the piano there in the missionary uh, aviation house and singing that hymn, I Trust in God. Wherever I may be, upon the land or on the stormy sea, though billows roll, he keeps my soul. My heavenly Father watches over me. But Lord, didn't you watch over my husband? Where are they? No, I would not claim by any means that I have kept a quiet heart in all the situations of my life. And to this day, I am tempted and get upset at times. My baby was sick, and there were three sick babies. Three of us, five wives, widows, had babies at that time, and all three of them got dysentery. 
And of course, I couldn't help as I look back and thinking that very likely those babies were affected by our emotions. And small as they were, and ignorant as they were of what was going on, that could have happened. And of course, you can imagine the suspense as a rescue party went in and they kept calling back with messages that didn't give us any hope whatsoever. And I love the stanza of that hymn that I just mentioned. The valley may be dark, the shadows deep, but oh, the shepherd guards his lonely sheep. And through the gloom, he'll lead me home. My heavenly Father watches over me. Do you believe that he is able to keep you? Do you trust him to be the stronghold of your life? In 1957, well, I should tell you, in 1956, right after my husband's death, I prayed what seemed a ridiculous prayer. I just said, Lord, if there's anything you ever want me to do about the Alcas, I'm available, thinking there isn't the slightest chance that God is going to ask a widow with a baby to do anything so foolish. Well, God opened a door, which I could not refuse to go through. And that's too long a story to tell you this afternoon, but it is in a book called The Savage, My Kinsman. But I was given the privilege of meeting two Alcas in a most unusual and amazing way, one of those so-called coincidences that God is completely in charge of, the whole grand providence of his will. I happened to be where I would never have normally been. Two Quechua men suddenly arrived at the door and said, we've got two Alka women at our house, would you like to meet them? And I had about five minutes to make up my mind. They said, we left home when the sun was over here, and now the sun is here. It was 12 o'clock when they got to the house where I was, and they said, we've got to get home by the time the sun is over here. So it's a six-hour walk. Make up your mind, because we're leaving. And the Lord brought, me, brought to mind that verse from Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Of course I may be walking into the same kind of a trap that the five men had walked into. Did I know for sure that I was going to be safe? You know, safety is none of our business. Our business is obedience, and the results of that obedience belong to God. Stephen was obeying God when he was stoned to death. The results of his obedience meant stoning to death, and God was in charge. John the Baptist had confronted an evil king about his adultery. Doing the will of God he was, wasn't he? But he was thrown into prison and he got his head chopped off. Is that the way God treats his servants? Yes. God treats his servants as he treated his son. Was there any other way for Jesus Christ to save you and me? other than the cross. There was no other way. Jesus said, if it is not possible, nevertheless, not my will be done. It was not possible for God to save his son from the cross 
and save you and me. It was either or. Somebody had to die. And so Jesus Christ went to that cross. There may be someone here this afternoon who does not know Jesus Christ, who has not come to the foot of that cross and said, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm helpless. I can't make it on my own. And we who know him and have loved him for years, we still know we can't make it on our own. There isn't a day that goes by that we don't need him, as the old hymn says, I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord, every minute, every second. But the Lord gave me a quiet heart. I can honestly say that as I traversed that trail, that jungle trail across rivers and up, up hills and down into ravines and following these two Indian guides, I really had a quiet heart. The Indians were just terror-stricken. They just saw alcas all over the place. They'd point out, see that twig there? That means that an alka has gone by and he has left a sign for the other people of the tribe so they'll, it means something, you know, it's a, it's a code. And you see that place where the grass is kind of flat? Well, they've been lying in wait there for somebody to come along this trail so they can spear them. And we didn't know now around the next bend. When I do not know what to do, what am I supposed to do? trust in the Lord. And if you want to know one of my favorite verses, my life verses, and I've given you quite a few of them in these talks, Second Chronicles 20, 12. I love this one. Lord, we do not know what to do. Do you like that verse? Is there any time in your life when you did not know what to do? In fact, because you've heard all this stuff and I have been snowing you with things, obedience, you may be sitting there just thinking, oh, this is too much of a load. Lord, I don't know what to do. What am I supposed to do first? And you know what? He's going to tell you. He will tell you what to do first. Elizabeth Elliot can't tell you. But just do the next thing. Do the next thing that he shows you. Fix your gaze on Jesus Christ the stronghold of my life, and do the next thing. And I will read you that poem, which has been such a help to me. From an old English parsonage down by the sea, there came in the twilight a message for me. Its quaint Saxon legend, deeply engraven, hath, as it seems to me, te teaching from heaven. And all through the hours the quiet words ring like a low inspiration do the next thing. Many a questioning, many a fear, many a doubt hath its quieting here. Moment by moment, let down from heaven, time, opportunity, guidance are given. Fear not tomorrow, child of the king. Trust it with Jesus. Do the next thing. My prayer that you will keep a quiet heart. Don't indulge in a contents, contest of wills. Trust his loving providence and commit your soul to that stronghold, which is Jesus Christ. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And we'll keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. 
Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Thank you.